Thank you for that song put to prayer. And may we be under the influence of the Spirit and just like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word. The opportunity, Lord, to gather not in presence, but in your presence online. I'm asking, Lord, that this technology would be multiplied to carry your message forward and to move your people to higher ground. Guide us in this time together. May we be taught. May we be transformed. Please draw very near to us now. May we hear what you're saying in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, I'm going to attempt to put my arms around some challenging subject matter. Entitled my message, COVID-19 in a post-truth world. Now, I want to start by asking you if you know how to be heard. We're living in an age where truth is very difficult to find because it's hidden behind what we call perspective and partisanship. I can immediately discount what you're about to say if I'm not a seeker after truth by figuring out from what angle you're launching yourself. And as soon as I know where you're coming from, I know where you're going, and I can tune you out, I can decide if you're worth reinforcing my preconceived ideas or if I want to be troubled by the potential that something you say might rattle my security. So this morning, this topic is challenging because uh, many that are listening are from free democratic societies where the play and counterplay of ideas is not only expected, but some would have a philosophy that a right role of citizenship would inquire you to engage politically. Of course, politics and religion are the two things we're not supposed to talk about in public places, much less mix them. And it is not my goal to mix them here today, except to say that if you're looking for truth or if you wanna be truth, in a post-truth world, there's some things you're going to have to do. I want to start by reminding you that God's people have often found themselves under the persecuting power of a political system, a religious system. But I have a hard time imagining Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, sitting around in their Babylonian flat, ragging on Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, as they found themselves headed to the crucible of potential persecution, I'm certain they were praying for a breakthrough, not only for themselves, but for all the myriad other Jewish men and women in that empire that had decided ahead of time that loyalty to God was going to come before everything else. It's never recorded in the New Testament scripture, to my knowledge, especially in the four synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus takes a moment to tell his disciples how he really feels on a personal level, and a personal grievance against the political leader. He has some very direct words 
for those political leaders, but they are typically that. They are typically direct. They are to the person that needs to hear them or to a courier that will take them to that person. What I really want to say to you at the beginning of a sermon where I'm going to talk about truth and fear, fear to live the truth, fear to speak the truth, a greater fear that the truth spoken might not be heard because the instrumentality of our life might deflect the worthiness of what we're saying. It's imperative that our lives have bound up in them a divine nobility, something that takes us to a higher level of credibility. The very transformation that we're hoping will come into the lives of others must be in our own or else we will not be heard. We will be easily pigeonholed or categorized and slid off to the side. So this morning, truth amidst the coronavirus in a post-truth world. A dialogue, a debate, a contest between truth and fear. I'm holding in my hands here an article out of JSTOR, The Danger of Public Shaming in the Internet. The subtitle says, The ritual of public shaming is nothing new, but today's brand of mass humiliation is more public, more widespread, and more scarring, and more potentially dangerous. It used to be that if you wandered outside the mores or the value system of your tribe, your group, that there would be somebody that would confront you and communicate their displeasure. Nowadays, everyone's supposed to have their own truth and the freedom to live their own life, but if you violate the new social mores, the new social values, you can immediately be crucified in the public opinion and held up on the World Wide Web as one who ought not to do that by myriads of people who have no interest in you and no desire to see you restored or respected. So we find ourselves fearful of where we might speak truth, cautious about how we might live truth, hesitant to get outside the bounds that would bring some kind of duress upon us, something less than affirmation. Years ago, in a public forum, Khrushchev was commenting on Stalin. It was a censuring of his predecessor in a public meeting, and he was interrupted by someone from the audience who cried out, you were one of Stalin's colleagues, so why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev was probably a bit taken back at that moment, but he roared out, who said that? There was agonizing silence in the room. Nobody dared to move a muscle. And then he changed his demeanor and his tone of voice, and he said, now you know why. Our fears make us traitors, Shakespeare writes. And Emerson would go on to say, he has not learned the lesson of life who does not daily surmount a fear. Cicero would add to it, no power is strong enough to be lasting if it labors under the weight of fear. So I have a very peculiar objective in this message. I'm here to challenge all listening to me as to the degree of prior cost counting that's gone into their journey with Christ and what their life will look like as circumstances compel them 
to follow their own convictions based on the word of God versus the trajectory and the trends of modern society, even inside the church. Our fears make us traitors. Something very important to think about. Yes, truth is now about perspective and partisanship, both of which deny the fact that there is a day of accountability coming. We will be held accountable for every thought, every word, every action, every failure to act when we should have. And this is a sobering, sobering thought. So I want to remind you that Christianity was birthed in a crisis. It was a crisis of truth. On one side were the Sadducees who had honeyed up with the Romans. On the other side were the Pharisees who had sided up with orthodoxy and traditional Judaism in the law. And along comes Jesus, who's not afraid to offend either or both all at the same time, and who will also speak power to truth when necessary. The emotional fabric of the followers of Jesus was woven with the confidence of his love, the security it created, and a commitment to truth. But I'm here to tell you Christianity was born in a crisis and it will be reborn in a crisis. And some will be shaken away and shaken out because their fears will make them traitors. Scorned, ridiculed, stalked, hated. These are descriptions of the experience of those who followed Jesus. When he was in Simon's house, Simon thought if he only knew. When he raised Jairus' daughter, they laughed at him. In Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. They said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. There was a conspiracy to kill him for healing a man with a withered hand, and they picked up stones more than once to snuff out the life of Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 10. This is the calling of the apostles. What an appropriate place to lay out what the calling might envision. It's important for us to remember in the 21st century, before the outpouring of the latter rain, in anticipation of this great global religious showdown over God's word, over God's law, over items and aspects of worship, it's important for us to understand what Jesus laid out and lined out as a proper expectation for following him. Now, I'd like for you, as you go through these things, I'd like for you to ask yourself, just put a little check by the ones you've experienced. The emotional fabric of the followers of Jesus, fair warning be given, count the cost before you come. Don't start building this spiritual household of faith without understanding what it's going to entail. Here we go. Behold, verse 16, Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves' clothing, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent or harmless as doves. It's hardly a posturing or a launch of security. Sheep amongst wolves. It's going to take some divine presence for protection and sustenance. Verse 17, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Folks, there's probably no one listening to me here today unless they've come from the 1060 window or from an eastern former Soviet bloc country who can put a check by verse 17. Verse 18, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. Probably no check there either. 
But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what it is you are to say. For it will not be you who's speaking, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks to you. Don't be afraid, it's Jesus' message. These are the things that are going to happen, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world going on. Verse 21, brother will betray brother. If we put the pause there, you might be able to check it. To death, no check. And a father, his child, hard to imagine. Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all because of my name. No check. But it is the one who is enduring to the end who will be saved. And when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. I know of one person. I can remember Dr. Samuel Bacchiocchi telling me stories of selling books in Italy as a boy, young man, riding his scooter. The constables and their thugs coming up to him and grabbing him and pounding on him. He made an active decision. I'm leaving this place. He followed the biblical directive. But I know of very few. Uh, personally, I, I have known of one. Some of you listening might have experienced some of this. When they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. I tell you, you will not finish going through all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. The work will continue to need to be done, and this is the price you'll have to pay to do it. Friends, if you've grown up in a Western democracy, especially in America, you've grown up with no persecution or very little persecution for your belief system. You've paid almost no emotional price. Consequently, it is not a precious jewel that you've protected and has redefined and reshaped who you are. Many look at it as a liability, especially in an age of conformity. In chapter 10, continuing on, Jesus reminds us not to be afraid of those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, and that like a sparrow of, whom, of which he's keeping track, we being worth more than many are being paid attention to as well. Verse 34, though, let's continue, because Jesus, in effect, is going to say that following me will create problems inside of your family. Verse 34, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, some are able to check this. You weren't raised as an Adventist Christian. You weren't raised, raised as a Christian at all. And following Christ broke you out of the family traditions. Your very presence and actions and thoughts and words created conviction on other people, and they didn't like it. You're the problem. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me. Loves son or daughter more than me, not worthy of me doesn't take up their cross and follow me, not worthy of me, but whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, I hope that as we came through the last part of Matthew Chen, there's a number of parents who could put a check next to those sentiments. In a world of indulgence and rights, in an age of affirmation and, and security of emotion, esteemism, there are still a number of parents who have stood in the path of children who are pressing on to a, a chronological adulthood without a spiritual maturity or even a civic or societal maturity. Certainly not some of them relational or social 
maturities. There should be a check by all kinds of people listening to me right now as they parented through adolescence by some of those words. But there are myriads who have decided that maintaining a relationship, letting the child reshape the relationship with ungoverned, uninformed, and unexperienced ideas was a better way. I'm here to tell you today that there is no way for the peace of Christ to arrive, be protected, and experienced in your heart if along the way you don't understand there's a price tag for pursuing this Christ. When a parent fails to follow a conviction to restrain or train a child, or even to acknowledge a conviction that they should, they are abdicating a religious role, and they have allowed fear of rejection by those that they've given so much to, to wrongly shape their future. And they won't be very fit for functional and beautiful, fragrant marriages or effective journeys in adult occupations. Yes, there's a certain emotional stamina needed to follow Jesus. Where do you get it? How do you keep it? What if you don't have it? Well, I want to encourage you today. There's a build-up phase. There's a phase of crisis, of transition. There's a bold phase, and there's a fruitful phase. And I want to talk with you about all three of them. Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see a man who decided in the midst of duress that he wasn't going to abandon who he knew he was called to be. He was in a foreign country. He found himself in a foreign prison. He was a slave for a period of time, but all along the way, he retained a God-given prerogative, maintaining his identity in God. Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, sold by his brothers, improperly parented at times by his father, found himself in an Ishmaelite caravan on his way down to Potiphar's house in Egypt. But like Psalm 1 says, everything he did prospered. And it was noted. And he was moved to the highest rank of preeminent steward in the house of Potiphar. But there was one thing that was not his, and that was the wife of Potiphar. However, she was a loose woman with little moral fortitude. And she decided that the conquest of Joseph would be her next challenge. Day by day, the invitations were given. And finally, with no other servant in the house one day, she grabs him by the coat and says, this is it. And Joseph says, no, it's not. He leaves his coat behind. She cries out. What Joseph knows next is that his, his boss, his owner, didn't really believe his wife or he would have been executed on the spot. But there was nothing he could do the social fragilities of the moment required some form of punishment for Joseph or embarrassment about his marital status, and Joseph ends up in a prison. In that prison, he interprets a few dreams, but he's forgotten about and neglected. What Joseph shows us is that if we are going to stick to our value system, the devil is going to try to leverage, us, leverage it against us. But we should not want to be in the position where fears of coming persecution, fears of loss as a result of the gain we've acquired in Christ should turn us into a traitor. Joseph remains true to what he believes and it appears that his life is ruined because of it, except for one thing. As John the Baptist said, a man can only have what God gives him. And so Joseph finds himself 
a year or two after interpreting a butler and a baker's dream, he finds himself cleanly shaved and washed, standing in the presence of Pharaoh, and he goes from the prison to the palace in one day. This is what God can do for a man he can work through. But in the process of refining and preparing Joseph, his value system, his understanding of what God expected of him, of truth, cost him an awful lot. There's no promotion, there's no position, there's no friendship circle, there's no affirmation in this present age that is worth sacrificing the peace that passes understanding. And if you're a parent doing it today, or a pastor, or an administrator, or a teacher, or a politician, it's costing you too much for whatever it is it's giving you. God is calling all of us to be people of the book, people of prayer, resulting in people of being people of conviction, and as a result of that, yes, there's going to be some turbulence. Read Matthew 10 every once in a while. Don't think I came to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. It's imperative for us to understand that truth will always have to run into fear because fear is the elemental pry bar of Lucifer to get us to abandon our identity with God. Now I wanna move to the second person. Joseph was free even though he was imprisoned. This next man would find himself not so free, but in flux. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. He was a man of preeminence. Indeed, his academic achievements and perhaps his political ability to maneuver inside the institutions of Judaism made him the teacher in Israel. But there was something unsettled in his heart and mind. He did not have the fruits of the Spirit that come in a right relationship with God. And when he heard Jesus speak, he could tell there was something different. And he wanted to talk to him one-on-one. But fearful for what it might cost him socially, he does it in the dark. Verse 1, John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The problem is, is that Jesus wasn't just a teacher and Nicodemus needed a whole lot more than just a scholastic friend. Jesus answered and said to him, truly I say unto you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a divine encounter. Nicodemus is not willing to bow down at the feet of Jesus just yet. He represents too much of the bipolar opposite of all the privileges and prerogatives that he currently has. And yet there's something inside him. It's a battle that's going on. They go back and forth for a bit. And Jesus leaves him with a visual image from the Old Testament. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a theological encounter like none he has ever had before, but he's not quite ready yet to follow Jesus. Turn over to the seventh chapter of the same gospel. We don't know exactly how many months have transpired between John 3 and John 7, but we know that there's a battle going on in the mind of Nicodemus. The Sanhedrin has sent the soldiers of the temple precincts to arrest Jesus, but they come back empty-handed. It says, then the officers came to the chief priests, verse 45, and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken 
the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you've not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in them, has he? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Now what we need to understand in this dialogue is that there was a chapter with Nicodemus before this one. What we need to understand in this dialogue is that Nicodemus is running under the radar of profession, but that doesn't mean his conscience hasn't been pricked and there's not a wrestling going on. What you need to understand is that those guards had enough gumption to communicate what was going on in their own heart and minds, and at some degree, yes, they associated themselves with this crowd. They were willing to be ignorant or ignoramuses according to the Sanhedrin, but they weren't willing to go completely against what it was that was going on inside of them. But what we need to know as the leaders of the Sanhedrin are talking with the soldiers, there's a Pharisee who can hear every word that's being said, and there's a choice in front of him. And the choice is, is he going to allow those soldiers, ignorant though they be, to be the only ones that put their face into the wind about who Jesus is? Yes, Nicodemus can hear them being scorned and, and derided, and he's, he's locked in the midst of a battle. Is he going to move? None of us have gone along with what he's doing, have we? But they don't know that Nicodemus is seriously thinking about it. Verse 50, then Nicodemus, you came to him before. John wants you not to forget that the battle going on inside of him is about to have a little expose of potential loyalty being one of them. That is, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him what it is he's doing. Does it? They spin around from facing the soldiers and they stare squarely into the man who's embarrassing them and taking away their line of logic. None of us have believed, maybe, maybe not. And Nicodemus is communicating not so much that he's automatically a follower of Christ, but there are still laws regarding engagement. There are still, there are still dynamics of judicial integrity which must be followed and they have nothing but venom for Nicodemus. You're not also one of them from Galilee, verse 52, are you? Go ahead and look and see. There's an indication that he too, like the soldiers, might have a, a tad bit of scriptural ignorance going on here because no prophet arises out of Galilee. You see, friends, this world is good at scorning and shaming, and when you add vigor into the mix, we see the hypocrisy of the current age. Some of you may have seen the video. I'm not suggesting that you watch it. By mentioning it, I know that that may happen. Of that social studies teacher in New York City who saw the kids in the park that was closed playing football. She got amped. She got angry. She said things she shouldn't have said. She used words she shouldn't have used. And then she went above all that and said, I hope you die of a long, a long, serious or painful death with COVID-19. When they came up to her with the computer, that is the phone rolling, she didn't care. Of course, after it went viral and millions and millions of people saw it, 
She cared. You know, when we get into certain situations, we're confronted with a decision. Is fear going to move us? Or is it going to be the confidence that we ought to do what's right, irregardless of whoever or whatever thinks it's right? Why do I bring that illustration up? Because I'm concerned in the day in which we're living that we have predetermined what is truth and we've chosen our course without engaging in the dialogues, respectful they should be, noble they should be, free of partisanship they should be. Couldn't they ever be totally free of perspective? Maybe not. But is there a God bigger than our human perspective who will lead us into the truth and set us free? We have a challenge. We don't live in the age of dictatorship. We live in the age of democracy. Is there a way to actually engage about methods and procedures, whether they be shelter in place or something else? Is there actually a way to do this in which a credible dialogue, maybe even disagreement about what is proper should happen? Or must everybody that feels one way be in this camp and everybody that feels another way be in this camp? Do you want to be listened to? Would you like to rise above the fray? Then bring a prayerful nobility in the dialogue and don't be afraid. Now, I'm not hurting people into the debates over how this thing should end or what the next step should look like. But I am saying this, every human individual craves affirmation. We're leaky vessels. Our confidence and our security is constantly draining out of us. We look for affirmation. The problem is, is that sometimes truth leads us in a counter-affirmation course. It may be in a religious realm. It might be somewhere else. But I do know this. Nicodemus may not have known exactly what truth was in the moment in John chapter 7, but he knew this. If he left those soldiers to stand up and he stayed sitting down, he was a coward. He hadn't decided fully for Jesus yet. But he did know this. People ought to be able to make up their minds without being humiliated, derided, without trying to bear up under the withering sarcasm of those at the height of the heap, at the top of the pack. There ought to be in a society like as ours a free place for discourse and discussion. Unfortunately, truth has fallen in the streets. And if you tune into the, this news channel, you get this message. And if you tune into this one, you get another. And I want to tell you, we are living in a precarious age. It is a sign of the times, and we ought to be seriously examining our own hearts to see what is the fabric of our emotional being. Can we follow convictions? Can we be men and women of nobility and kindness and principle and truth? Can we bear up under the withering sarcasm of a social media mob? Can we even stand up respectfully to our own spouse or to our own children? What has become of the moral backbone of a country which was birthed out of persecution and which may find itself not too many chapters away from a new era of it? Is fear the ruling mentality of your life? Is it the dominating emotional perspective? Is there not a greater love inside that at least says, they shouldn't have to face that on their own. Yes, Nicodemus was in a posture where if he didn't move at all, he was actually going backwards. Praise God, he stood up and said on behalf of the soldiers, they're right. 
Let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 19. Jesus is dead. He's hung on a cross. The theological images of the book of Numbers and the serpent raised on the pole are now more than reverberating through his mind. Throughout the months of watching Jesus and reflecting on his life, Nicodemus has molded over. He's studied the scrolls. He's poured out his heart to God. And when he sees Christ hanging on a tree, he is probably, along with the women that have been listening in surrender without hopes of ambition and the public accol accolades and affirmation of, of all those around them, the, the women and Nicodemus, they get it. They see Nicodemus decides, I'm done with the old way. I've hidden too long behind privilege and prerogative, and I'm moving forward with the convictions of my life. This man was the son of God. And so along with Joseph of Arimathea, he says he will have a proper burial. Criminal, they say they are. Abused, maligned, mistreated, he was. But in this moment, he will have some measure of dignity. The storyline is about to change. It's hard to go from where you're at to where you ought to be. Next week, in conclusion of my series, Confidence in Crisis, I'm going to talk about the new way of things or what living in the world post-COVID-19 looks like or while it's dragging itself out. What is the new normal for God's people, for the church? Yes, it's hard to say, this has been everything I've loved. It's worse than that. It's what my kids have loved. I'm moving on because Jesus is drawing near. I'm letting go because I'm under conviction as I study and pray. Don't study and pray, don't worry, your convictions won't change. Open up the spirit of prophecy. Read the Bible. In the midst of all that, ask God to guide you. Give every preconceived idea you have about lifestyle, especially, back into the hands of Christ to understand. Most listening to me right now, unless they're older than I am, don't even know why we believe about our our way of living, which is a type of worship, even exist. Consequentially, we've gravitated into the same amusements, the same engagements, the same entertainments as the world. Consequentially, there is very little power to our lives individually or collectively, and the conscience of the United States has been hijacked by a new secularism that has its own form of morality, and when you get outside of it by condemning anything as right or wrong, you are the new bigot. You are the new prejudice one. Welcome to the new world, which isn't terribly new at all. We're just right back about where Jesus was when he came the first time, which means we're right about ready for Jesus to come the second. This is where we're at. Where's God calling you to? Perhaps that device is on too much. Perhaps the amount of money in your bank's gotten too big. Perhaps your engagements with people who laugh at things you shouldn't laugh at, your associations, perhaps your pursuits of education or power or occupation are out of whack and they're not about the glory of God. They look and link up a whole lot more like the desires of, of the devil, which is worship me, would you? Perhaps you find Facebook interesting, but perhaps it's also interesting because it's your personal publicist and it puts you at the center of so many hundreds or thousands of people's lives. Use it for God if you can. But I'm here to tell you, our spirit, our person, is either moving after the likeness of Christ or we are being not so subtly woven into the fabric of reflecting a personage of not so divine an origin. 
Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I'm afraid we've been on that journey for quite a little while, but I'm not quite done. Turn back a page. John chapter 18, 66 verses are recorded about this man. Every one of the gospel writers gives him quite a bit of narrative space. His name is Pilate. He's a politician of the Roman order. And on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, he's going to have a divine encounter. Now, you need to remember something. Pilate is not so far gone that Jesus won't have a conversation with him. Pilate is not so far gone that God won't send a dream to his wife. Pilate is not so far gone, but that he too could join Christ and be run over by the mob, maybe even lose his position in Rome. He has a chance. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. That's the Roman fortress right there attached to the temple precincts. It was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. I tell you, friends, it has to be one of the most gross verses in all the Scripture. They could have an innocent man who's done nothing wrong but challenge their intellectual religious constructs, and they won't be defiled by associating with Pilate, but getting Pilate to destroy a man in the most grievous way, the most gruesome way, is something they're willing to do. Defiled by Pilate's shadow and breath? No. Using Pilate? Yes. Their consciences seem to be unpricked. Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And in effect, they said, we don't need to talk to you about that. If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him. Pilate had a little bit of spine. Judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And now Pilate knew more of the story. Like he got it. He was an able political operative. This was to fulfill the words which Jesus had spoken, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And Pilate entered again into the praetorium and he summoned Jesus. He had already seen him. He didn't have the marks of a a raw and rough criminal. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So you are a king? You say correctly that I am a king. For this I've been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And now comes the crucible of the test for Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate had already heard it. Pilate was an able observer of people. He could already see that jealousy and animus, bitterness and injustice were wrapped all around this thing. Pilate could already tell by looking at Jesus and talking to Jesus that though he might be a Galilean, he was of noble birth, of heavenly citizenship. 
The conviction was already coming to bear on Pilate that something was very wrong in this circumstance and it was up to him to do something about it. But when Jesus elevated the challenge to one of moral superiority and laid out before Pilate that Pilate too had to make a choice about Jesus, Pilate was offended. And rather than stay on the track of enlightenment, he took the postmodern verbiage and said, what is truth? It's interesting that the conversation dies out. He goes out to the Jews again and thinks that he'll get out of this thing, but he doesn't. And in the end, the very simple truth of compassion and judgment and integrity is run over by political ambition and a lifelong habit of compromise. And don't tell me there aren't many Christians of a broad spectrum of denomination for whom this is not true today. Worse than that, they not only run it over, they've dishonored the ones who gave it to them as children. Worse than that, they've dishonored them and they've disrespected them by articulating that the religious constructs thrust upon them as children were wrong and harmful to their freedom and happiness in adulthood. This is the society we're living in. Truth is stumbled in the street and there's a mob there to kick it to death. Except for one thing, Jesus has promised to come down with zeal and raise it back up. And he's looking to do it in you, and he's looking to do it in me. I live in Michigan. Every summer, about two-thirds of the way through the summer, these little trees with kind of a dark gray silver bark have these little bitty red balls hanging from them slender green stem going up to the tree. We call them cherries. They're as good as any cherries from any part of the rest of the world. And when it's time to harvest these cherries, some places they come up with these machines. Tarps go out on the ground around the base of the tree. A mechanical hand goes out, grabs that trunk, and then in a few brief moments, hydraulics operative in full form and fashion, that tree is shaken and the fruit falls off. In the book of Revelation, we're told there's a day coming when we won't be able to buy or sell. I want to assure you, fear will make you a traitor. I want to assure you've got nothing religiously that can bear up under the burden of fear, as Cicero would say. I want to absolutely categorically affirm the words of Emerson that he who is going to live life rightly must face a fear every day because Christ leads us on to higher ground. And that higher ground involves being conquerors, not conquered by that elemental and base emotion which is the first fruit of sin. The mark of the beast will be a compliance with man-made law in contradiction to the law of God, the Ten Commandment law. What will be an obligation of a global nature to be in some church worshiping on the first day of the week will stand in stark contrast to those who are not in church on the first day of the week but are worshiping God on the anniversary of creation and redemption and soon-to-be celebration. The love of God has the power to break the grip of fear, and that love is to be practiced every day in the home, at work, at school, wherever we go. But the mark of the beast might be visible in Sunday keeping, but the essence of the beast is self-interest and fear, which makes us a traitor to God. 
I want it to be thought about. You have today. By God's grace, you might have tomorrow. It might be that it's time for you to stand up for a conviction with your spouse. It might be that it's time for the two of you to stand up and say, in our house, we will honor the Lord. And that program doesn't. And that activity doesn't. And that one, as harmless as it may be, is in the way of something else that would advance God's kingdom. The new normal next week. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. But I'll give you just a little uh, window inside. The new normal, if there is going to be something new and better, is going to involve a resurgence of refocus on the mission of God's church and the rebonding of God's people, which will mean the gathering of God's people and a new emphasis on prayer and fellowship of the believers. Yes, friends, the mark of the beast might be Sunday keeping, but the essence of the beast is fear, and eventually fear is enough to abandon truth. In contrast to that is the seal of God, which is reinforced by love in action no matter what it costs. We forget all the time that Jesus coming to this world was a supreme risk. Satan had brought force into heaven, and force was met with force. It was a war. If you think that in the divine dynamics of disagreement, there's no potential for loss, you need to think again. God himself was the target of the collective hate of a third of the angels. The harmony of heaven was broken up. There was risk in heaven, and it was confronted and excised. It was put down. That risk came down to earth. The difference between heaven and earth is that God was the leader, the governor, you might say, of the heavenly precincts. But on planet earth, somebody else sat on the throne. Jesus himself came as the divine Lamb of God into the mix of a generation, a complete global generation of wolves, trained by automatic resource to look out for themselves, willing, if necessary, to deny for money or abandon for liberty and freedom. Judas and Peter on the day of Christ's crucifixion. Yes, indeed, upset the institutional uh, equilibrium of the religious institutions of your day, embarrass a priest or two with the knowledge that they didn't really know the word or the spirit of the word, and they could be so willing to get you out of their way that they would cooperate with people they hate. The love of God moved him to take the greatest risk. When this world was formed, he knew where it was going. It would be the contestation of love versus hate. It would be the theater. It would be the stage, as it were, for the exercise of free will. Was God who he said he was? Was he not? But the drama to be played out was more than a risk. It was a promise. The only question mark was, could Satan overcome Jesus as he had embraced some measure of humanity? When it finally came time, scourged twice, too weak to carry the cross, Jesus begins to make his way to the pinnacle of the showdown where he leaves himself completely vulnerable to the viciousness of his enemy. His disciples have left him. There he is, friends. Yes, there's some risk involved in following the truth. Probably what everybody knows, but so few people say. But Jesus wasn't afraid to say it. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
He understood suffering, and he made it clear that everybody that followed him would suffer some too. But it wouldn't be the inside suffering. It wouldn't be the suffering of unrest in the soul. It would be the sorrow of a lost relationship, a lost opportunity. It would be marginalization in a secular age. It might be prison like it was for Joseph and for some that perhaps have grown up in communist countries and stuck to their convictions. Friends, nothing's changed. You're going to pay a price to follow Jesus. The real question is, are you willing? Yes, most of us listening today, they're at the height of the heap. They're at the top of the pile. They're the top dog in the dog pile. I'm appealing to everyone listening to me here today. God's Word speaks. The Holy Spirit seeks us out. In this moment of COVID-19, we've been confronted multiple times with the dynamics of fear. And now we get to put into the mix of all that, how are we going to be when it's over, especially since it's a wake-up call to wake up the world? Will we be the, the amplifiers of a beautiful, noble, loving appeal? Will we be willing to suffer? Are we going to change our lifestyles so that the vigor, the spirit of who we are could become like those of that followed Jesus? Yes, they were timid and, unafra and afraid. There was a build-up phase. Then there was the cross. In the midst of that crisis, they were changed. Peter came out the other side preaching boldly. He was a different man. He went on from the bold phase to the fruitful phase. That's what God's seeking to get us ready to do. It's time, friends. Today's the day. We're to follow Jesus. We're to stand up for what's right no matter what it costs us. Friendship, love, opportunity, money, whatever it might be. We're walking in the path of Jesus. We're following the path marked out by his blood-stained feet. And I'm appealing to everyone listening to me here today. Let perfect love cast out fear. It's time for us to believe in what he's called us to do and learn to hear his voice, to not shun conviction, but to embrace it, to go back into the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and go back to the people we're called to be different, maligned and marginalized, but free in Christ. Everyone gets to make a decision, friends. Today's the day where we can still make decisions. We don't want to be like those five virgins that wake up too late and they don't have enough confidence in God to make the journey. You can't build a relationship in a short amount of time. Oh yes, God saved the thief on the cross. But he's looking for a generation that would be interested in saving the entirety of this world and giving their all to do it. Young person, your career, your future, that's the biggest thing you have to lay on the line. Middle-aged person, all of the prestige, the tools, the experience, the resources, God's calling for it. Senior, your prayers, your spiritual depth. You don't have the ability to make money like you used to, but God's calling you back to be amongst his people, to go forward on your knees, or to take a risk for Jesus, knowing we'll be misunderstood, but the nobility of our person will get the attention of the world, and they'll know where they can find truth. It's in a life transformed and a message they've never seen lived out or heard. But God help each of us to make that decision today. Indeed, it's hard to know what's right and what's not, who's sharing the truth and who isn't. But we can go to God, understand it, and live it. I'm inviting you to make that decision today and walk with Jesus.